HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's special episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Martha and Marley Spoon, Martha Stewart's best recipes and fresh ingredients delivered to your door. Get three free meals today when you use code HERITAGE on MarleySpoon.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly culinary journey through culinary history. It's a special uh, show. It's a timely feature that we want to talk about because Slow Food is hosting the Slow Food Nations Festival this July. Now, for those of you who aren't really familiar with Slow Food, and you should be by now, However, Slow Food is a global grassroots organization founded in 1989 to prevent the disappearance of local food cultures, traditions, counteract the rise of fast life, and combat people's dwindling interest in the food they eat and where it comes from and how our food choices affect the world around us. Since its beginning, Slow Food has grown into a global movement involving millions of people in over 160 countries. And this July, they are hosting the Slow Food Nations Festival in Denver. So we wanted to be sure that we told all our listeners about this event. It's July 14th through the 16th in Denver, Colorado, and it will explore a world of good, clean, fair food for all with tastings and interactive workshops, lectures, uh, all kinds of different things. And today... I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun activities for everyone of the family. Today, I am fortunate to be able to talk to one of the participants in the Slow Food Nations Festival. It's historian, scholar, and chairman of Carolina Rice Gold Rice Foundation, David Shields. David was also, for many years, I think maybe still is, we'll find out in a second, the chairman of the Arc of Taste for the South for Slow Foods, which is all about finding out where the foods came from and preserving them. Welcome, David. Um, it's good to be here. And are you still chairman of the Arc of Taste for the South for Slow Foods? 
I am indeed. Uh, I've been uh, in the chair for about uh, three years, and uh, I should be serving um, at least another, uh, maybe two. Well, that's great. What, what in particular will you be doing at this festival in July in Denver? One of the things that I'm particularly interested in is uh, showcasing the um, land race heritage grains that uh, have been um, revived in the South uh, over the past 10 years or so. Um, one of the things which is uh, most precious in terms of uh, the world uh, traditions of food are the very earliest uh, varieties of grain that have been developed uh, by various cultures over uh, thousands of years, um, uh, hundreds of human generations, and have come down to the 21st century. Uh, there are numbers of these very ancient grains, and the South uh, is home to about 20 of them that uh, we've taken pains to bring back in numbers of instances or preserve. Well, certainly as chairman of the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation, that's that would be one of them. I'm <laughs> Yes, <laughs> the, the most famous of southern rices is one of the things that uh, we have um, uh, showcased for a long time. Uh, it was in the 19th century, considered the most valuable rice in the world rice market, uh, commanding the highest prices in Paris uh, in the 1850s, and still uh, an incredibly useful type of rice, particularly for uh, one-pot meals. It has a certain starch quality, which allows all other fair, uh, flavors to marry upon it. And so if you're making a jambalaya or a chicken bog or uh, hop and john, it's the ideal thing to put numbers of ingredients into. Mm. Well, you wrote quite a bit about um, revival and, and creation of, of these um, cuisines and, and the ingredients that go into the cuisines in your book, um, Southern Provisions, Southern Provisions, The Creation and Revival of a Cuisine. Yes, uh, uh, it's, uh, it was published about two years ago, and it's a, an attempt to, to show how uh, the agriculture connects up with uh, the cuisine and how um, really fine cooking depends on a superlative system of ingredients. And one of the problems that we faced was that over the course of the 20th century, um, very economical sorts of uh, foods eclipsed uh, foods that were famous for their flavor. Uh, and so that we had all of these formula, these recipes uh, handed down from families, from one's grandmother, but uh, we couldn't actually reproduce the flavor that was intended in the original recipes because uh, the Carolina gold rice or some of the other ingredients were gone. Right. We, did, we decided to bring them back, and uh, chefs and uh, consumers all over the South have uh, been happy about that. Right. Now, some people have written that it, the rice has such a painful history because it was uh, raised, the crops were all um, over, overseen, or they were planted and, and harvested by slaves, um, that why would you want to revive something with such a painful history? And well, then again, why, and why would you want to revive a lot of these different lost foods? Well, um, 
it's true that uh, under the slave system, uh, much toil was expended uh, by bound people uh, in the production of these uh, uh, of this um, commodity. But um, one of the things that you have to also consider is that that commodity forms, you know, a central place in the Gullah Geechee foodways. It's uh, it, that tradition itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the most recent and interesting of our uh, revivals has to do with a rice that was maintained by a group of ex-slaves uh, from the South in Trinidad. Uh, this was a upland dry culture rice, uh, which is really significant because you don't have the problems of malaria that uh, devil working in uh, water impoundments that are usual for rice, right. and you could dr- grow it on hillsides. In the end of the 18th century, uh, a red-bearded rice came from West Africa and was widely planted throughout the South. Uh, uh, it was used by slaves for their own provisions and their huck patches, um, and was also adopted by farmers uh, in the Piedmont of the South. And it thrived for about 100 years and then disappeared when uh, white rice became so cheap that uh, it just didn't pay to engage in any effort to grow rice. Um, So why did it survive in Trinidad? Uh, Interesting story. Um, During the War of 1812, the British Army invited slaves along the coast to join the Royal Marines to fight against their former masters, uh, a group of the saltwater Geechee on the Georgia Islands did so, uh, and uh, the British, in order to get them, promised uh, liberation and resettlement uh, with their own land in another part of the British Empire. In 1816, the British fulfilled that promise, and these people went and settled in Trinidad and took with them all of the plants they grew on the sea islands of Georgia. Hmm. When we went down there last December, we saw the red-bearded rice, which we thought was extinct, growing in the hills of South Trinidad around Princestown. And we met a farmer named John Elliott, who was a sixth-generation descendant of one of those uh, ex-enslaved African freedom fighters on the uh, coast of Georgia. Wow. So uh, that and that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. I know you're working with both chefs and farmers to revive some of these grains, find out the background of some of these ingredients. But with other than chefs and farmers, I mean, how tell us a little bit about the process that you've used in researching the agriculture. Well, one of the things that um, we had to do in order to revive the sort of systems that were being used that gave rise to these cuisines was to uh, to actually find out how uh, the field systems work, um, which crops were rotated or co-cropped with other um, cultivars. And uh, so we spent three years looking in 19th century ag journals before we made the first restorations. Hmm. And this is a, a little bit different than the usual procedure with uh, with uh, seed saving and finding ancient uh, uh, varieties, uh, often there's a kind of ethnobotanical serendipity. Somebody chances across uh, 
a family's pole bean or uh, an old apple, and uh, it uh, um, people didn't even know it was lost or. Uh, um, but when they discover it, it's fine, and people sort of exchange it as a, as a new discovery. In our case, we knew every enduring crop, uh, field crop, coke crop, provision crop that was produced in our region and, and systematically went out looking for it. We, we were looking for the small Carolina African runner peanut that was a sweeter peanut uh, and had better oil quality. We're looking for Bene, the low oil sesame that had mm-hmm. come over from West Africa. We were looking for uh, white grain sorghum, uh, which was uh, called guinea corn, uh, which was u- used as a millet. So we had this entire list of items, and uh, over the course of the past uh, dozen years, we've I'd say we found in the neighborhood of 75% of the things on there. Wow. That's, I mean, first of all, I have to, and I have to back up to let our listeners know that you are a distinguished professor at the University of South Carolina. Now, so no wonder that Southern provisions and Southern um, recipes are your specialty. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because when... When we think, and there's so much discussion today about um, what is American cuisine, American foods, but many people, when they think of American food or what is American cuisine, often think of these southern dishes of, of, as being the kind of the quintessential cuisine, if you will. And, and yet, as you said, that doesn't really taste like the original dishes. So finding these, the, you know, can read in novels, people will talk about the dishes they ate, and then to go and taste them, you wonder, hmm, something's a little left out, not as bright and, and, and exciting as they said. This must be very exciting for you to actually taste these ingredients. Yes, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Um, and uh, um, sometimes you get to taste things which instantly confirm uh, the most extravagant claims. Uh, when I first tasted a, the Bradford watermelon, the legendary antebellum watermelon uh-huh. that was considered the greatest that ever was, uh, that had been kept alive, interestingly enough, by the family that originally bred it, uh, the Bradford family of Sumter, South Carolina. Huh. I tasted it in 2012, and uh, it had this mineral quality, a super sweetness. It was just splendid. Um, and then, of course, you face a very interesting question in a world which is increasingly uh, buying seedless refrigerator melons. How do you bring back a 40-pound seeded picnic melon into the produce market? Um, well, one of the things we decided was that we wouldn't do that necessarily. What we would do is revive the old 19th century recipes, preparations that use the flavor of that Bradford watermelon, um, watermelon molasses, watermelon pickle, watermelon brandy, watermelon beer, Uh which you can sell year-round and not worry about, you know, having 40-pound melons rotting on the produce stand. (laughs) But isn't that part of the fun of eating watermelon, to spit out all those seeds? (laughs) Yes, particularly if if you have a brother or sister. (laughs)
If you're like most Heritage Radio Network listeners, you love cooking quick, healthy meals on weeknights, but sometimes you get stuck when you don't have time for planning, shopping, and prepping. Or maybe you're short on new and interesting dinner ideas and dreading the trip to the grocery store. And who wants to haul all those bags home after a long day at work? Hmm, not me. That's why I'm so excited to share Martha and Marley Spoon with you. They send seasonal, pre-portioned ingredients and Martha Stewart's best recipes right to your door. No grocery shopping, no schlepping. You can choose from 10 healthy recipes each week and get a delicious meal on the table in 30 minutes. How does it work? Simply go to marleyspoon.com, choose your delivery day, and select your dishes. It's completely flexible, so you can skip, cancel, or change preferences anytime. And some of the dishes that I tried, and they do change their menus every week, was a teriyaki steak with grains and peanut chicken and noodles. Really delicious. Interesting ideas that I wouldn't have thought of. And everything is packaged specifically for that recipe. You'll never waste food again. And best of all, it's so easy to use with six beautifully photographed steps for each 30-minute recipe. Want to try it? Go to MarleySpoon.com and choose your meal plan now. On the checkout page, just type in the code HERITAGE for your three free meals. That's MarleySpoon.com. Enter code HERITAGE. And let yourself drift. Break my grief and pull me out. You have really created quite a movement um, for the South in, um, well, and for, in general, on in food ways and, and uh, the history of them and about finding these true ingredients for, for this cuisine. Now, when you say that, you know, the revival of okay these seeds but then you're not you're not really or the rice the grains you know the whatever it is you're you know at that time that you're that you're researching but you're not really creating a new cuisine well one of the things that or are um, you? <laughs> um i honestly believe is that you know when you have a great ingredient you don't want to just uh, engage in reenactor food. Hmm. Uh, its qualities are such that any uh, experienced professional chef should be able to make the best new dishes out of them. And uh, traditions are only um, valuable to the extent that they remain alive and dynamic, that they generate their own future. And one of the things that these flavors, these ingredients that are so exceptional in their quality do is supply a great um, old tool for the use of uh, uh, the modern workers in this world. Hmm. Well, and you have, I've read where you have said that um, regional resides in ingredients. And indeed, some of these uh, Ingredients might not grow as well or have the same taste if they're not grown in their locations well, where they were, where they became so famous and such. What you're looking at there, the um, the southern areas. So right, there is and, a, and every region in the United States has its own matrix of uh, distinctive ingredients. The South has uh, just been particularly conscious of theirs 
but uh, the native uh, seed search in the southwest has been very vibrant in its revivals, and New England uh, in recent years has become increasingly conscious of its wonderful heritage, um, the um, cideries of New England in particular have taken mm-hmm. a very um, uh, vanguard position in the uh, restoration and recovery of the great cider apples and crab apples that made uh, New England cider the byword of the nation. That's true. That's right. And a lot of these are a lot of these different regions. They're all going to be represented at the um, the Slow Food Nations Festival. Yes, it is a truly national and indeed international gathering that will take place in Denver. And the Ark of Taste, which is the slow food register of the uh, most endangered, historically resonant and flavorful ingredients, is a global register. It's a uh, it is. Um, um, a kind of, I don't know, hall of fame, if you will, which draws attention to uh, the very best. And that attention is important because uh, a farmer can ask a premium uh, when growing it, and uh, a chef can uh, say that uh, this is, you know, made of the historically recognized thing. And people in a community can say, we're using our signature uh, watermelon or our signature uh, cowpea in in doing this. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that a festival of this nature, or even just the the book, if if you join Slow Foods uh, as a member, which I would encourage people to do, they, you do publish or have published... um, books on the Ark of Taste, and I think connecting people with these farmers and with this history of foods gives them a better appreciation, certainly, for for the foods that they're eating. I often talk on the show about how Americans spend too little of in for their weekly market basket, and they have to appreciate the better foods and pay a little bit more for them and appreciate them a little more. And right. hopefully this uh, this festival will do that. Um, you will be talking about the grains. You said, what are some of the other grains that you'll be talking about? Um, we will talk about uh, every variety of grain. Uh, we'll talk about the restoration of uh, the oat varieties, the English black oat, the black Tartarian oat, the naked oat, uh, and uh, the white uh, potato oat, the four classic oats. Uh, uh, also, maybe the Virginia gray turf oat, which is a very interesting oat. Uh, it was originally uh, bred in the colonial period for horses, and uh, uh, it was really, really high protein. It was sort of like horse rocket fuel. <laughs> and uh, there's no reason why human beings uh, can't eat it. Uh, and if you really want uh, a morning energy pickup, I mean, having a bowl of uh, white uh, of uh, Virginia turf oats might be the equivalent of downing a six-pack of Red Bull or something like that. <laughs> you might be on to something. <laughs> I, I, who knew there were so many of those oats? But you know, it's interesting you mentioned something that, that was raised as for horse feed. And um, something interesting from actually from your book, Southern Provisions, are you in talking about you know, trying to find out the history of some of these things, 
and and my as my question to you is you said you had to figure out which of these varieties were used for fodder or for cuisines and, and you know human consumption and which of them were just planted as cover crops to regenerate right. the soil so that i mean where do you go back to where do you go back that far to find it um i i usually go back to the 18th century um, when the field systems get established. But one of the things you discover is, uh, you know, new varieties are always being bred into existence or introduced from elsewhere um, during the course of uh, the passing decades. And it's interesting to see how a new introduction of a vegetable or a grain actually alters the landscape. One of the things that is so interesting when you take a, a kind of agricultural viewpoint, you realize that a lot of the root vegetables um, were multi-use things um, on the farm. Uh, they were meant for human uh, consumption, but they were primarily there for winter feed for livestock. Um, and you run across the most interesting sorts of comments like in the 19th century, the carrot was not much liked by um, most people. Uh, it was used in stews and things like that primarily, but it was grown everywhere because horses loved them. Hmm. And, and, uh, and um, one of the things that happens is that in the 1890s, the adherents of the physical culture movement um, uh, embraced the carrot as health food, and you would have... Uh, pureed carrot juice as a thing next to orange juice, which would galvanize your vital spirits. So you have these cultural movements revalue vegetables over the course of of the various decades. Well, it's it's certainly an intriguing topic, and um, I I did enjoy learning about the southern provisions a lot from from your book, and I um, I look forward to all of the uh, information that comes out of these research topics. And I know that you are working with um, quite a few people who are in the news as well. One of the chefs, Sean Brock, has been on the show many times, and not my show, but on the network, and um, a few of the other uh, agricultural people. And I think it's just such a, a wonderful group to bring all these people together and find out what everyone you know, can, can learn and have from one another and know. Uh, One of the things that I would recommend that everyone do is that the uh, Slow Food maintains a website of all of the ingredients on the Ark of Taste. And uh, with a few clicks of the keyboard, you can uh, you can get there and find out the stories of some remarkable ingredients. At slowfood.org? Uh, that's right. Slowfood.org. And you can learn more and you can have an opportunity to become a member, just like you have an opportunity to become a member of HeritageRadioNetwork.org. <laughs> we bring you all these great stories. Well, David, thank you so much for sharing your information um, about your work, your research, and about the um, Slow Food Taste of Nations Festival that's coming up, remember, in July, the 14th to the 16th in Denver, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening. Oh, you're welcome.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.